you guys do quiet down so much quicker than first service. That's all right. You can change that. I mean, well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, we are in, we're going to start a new book this morning. We're going to look at First Timothy. And so uh, if you have a Bible, turn to First Timothy chapter one. If you need a Bible, Mike has got four Bibles in his hand, so we can give four Bibles away right now. <laughs> Just raise your hand and get one right to your seat. You can follow along with us. First Timothy chapter one, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses as you're turning there. After Pastor Jason studied last week about climbing Mount Everest and moving forward as a church, I thought we could just piggyback off of his title. And so I'm calling our study this morning, Forward Together, Part 2. Because I really believe that God has been speaking to our church about the importance of what lies ahead for us as a church. And, and we need to be ready for great things. God has some great things in store for us. And so I thought I'd take that picture that Jason had last week of Mount Everest and the climbers climbing up on there and, and I put it up there and just, I thought it was a great picture and how they're just climbing together and, and, uh, and, and really look at what kind of conduct we should have as we make this climb together, as we move forward. So with that, let's read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11 verses starting in verse 1. We read, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord, as I urge you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge them that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, have stray, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be uh, in this place where we know, Lord, that you're in this presence, in our presence, Lord, and you desire to speak to our hearts. And so, Lord, we're in anticipation of what you have to say to each one of us that are here this morning. Thank you for gathering us together, Lord. We also pray if there's anyone that has joined us this morning that does not have a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. Perhaps they don't know that their sin is forgiven. They're not born again today. Lord, would you especially touch their heart that they would see their need for you and turn to you this morning. We thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Perhaps you remember the story of poor old Pastor Waite. He may have stood in front of the communion table all afternoon trading punches had it not been for head deacon Ray Bryson who nailed him into the chin two minutes and 15 seconds into the fight. Pastor Waite went down for the counts at the altar where most members of Emmanuel Baptist Church had first declared their commitment to Christ. Within an instant, all erupted as the majority of the congregation converged on the communion table, punching and shoving and fighting. The brawl still spilled over to an open space beside the organ. Mary Dahl, the director of the Dorcas Society, 
picked up a hymnal and threw it. It sailed high and wide and splashed out in the baptistry behind the choir. When Ray's right hook finally took the pastor down, someone grabbed the spring flowers arrangement from the altar and threw it high in the air in Ray's direction. Water sprinkled everyone in the first two rows on the right side, and a visiting Presbyterian experienced a complete immersion when the vase shattered against the wall next to his seat. The fight ended when the police arrived on the scene. Or how about this story of the little boy who had been consistently misbehaving in church until finally his father snatched him up and hurried him out to receive his punishment. No one really paid any attention until the little boy cried out, Y'all pray for me now. You see, as we begin to look at First and Second Timothy and Titus, and the theme of these letters can be found in First Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, when Paul writes this, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. See, Paul there is stating his very reason for writing this letter to Timothy so that Timothy, as well as the people in the church, may know how to conduct themselves, how to act when they're in church. So the question then in moving forward as a church, what kind of conduct is appropriate in church? Notice that Paul says there in verse uh, 14 that the church is the house of God. That phrase actually carries with it the uh, concept of a household. As in the word household carries with it the idea that the church is a church family. So the church is the household of God and he's our father and we're his children. So we're here this morning as a family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, needing to love one another and encourage one another and pray for one another. And if need be, to rebuke one another and provoke one another to love and to good works. Not just provoke one another, there's enough of that going on, but to provoke one another to love and to good works. A lot of churches, they just provoke one another, they forget the love and good works part. So, we're the family of God, the household of God, the church of the living God. In fact, Pastor Jason shared last week, 1 Corinthians 12, 26, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it, or if one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. You see, in the Apostle Paul's day, as in our day, there were those in the church who looked very religious. They looked very in tune to, to, to God on Sunday morning as they maybe worshipped with their hands raised or they said an amen every now and then. As soon as service was over, it was, see you next week. Only in Paul's day, in Paul's scene, there was, there was much more pomp and circumstance. It was a very religious and, and all about the way a person dressed and the way they, they looked in their apparel. You know, it, it was one that looked very spiritual on the outside, but in, Mary, in very many cases, it was very much void of any spirit at all. And I think that we can find ourselves in that same place if we're not careful. Because what I found is as we look in God's Word, we see that God is not so much interested in our outward appearances. He's more interested in the heart, what's going on on the inside of our heart. He focuses his attention here on the heart of the pastor and the heart of the leader, on the heart of the man and the woman serving him day to day, be it at church and ministry or in your job ministering to those around you. You see, I know we call First and Second Timothy and Titus the pastoral epistles, but they are much more than that. Yes, the pastor has a responsibility to lead, but there are principles in these letters that go much further than just for the pastor. I mean, they're effective for the, for the Sunday school ministers. They're effective for the ministry in your home. 
in your family, as you lead, as a dad, as you've been given responsibilities as a mom. There are principles for all of us. And God has called each one of and every of us to, to bear his name and to live a life that's worthy of following him. Especially in this day and age when we see so much compromise in the lives of those that call themselves Christians. We need to realize that people are watching our lives. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, what are they seeing? Are you setting the kind of standard that people are looking to follow? You see, there are principles that we find in First and Second Timothy. These principles are here. And if you're taking notes, we're going to see five of them this morning. Five principles. Number one, don't be afraid of the task. Number two, communicate the truth. Number three, stay focused on the target. Number four, beware of those who have strayed. Number five, consider this a test. I don't have an acronym for you. It would be you know, so I, it, that wouldn't work. But, but those are five points. Let me give you a little background on Timothy. Timothy had, had been a teenager in a home with a pagan father and a Jewish mother living in a town called Lystra, which is now south-central Turkey. His mother and his grandmother taught him the scriptures at a very young age, but, but he didn't know who Jesus was, that he was the promised Messiah, until a rabbi named Paul came into town. Paul healed a man who was blind since he was from birth and, and preached the gospel, but, but then he was stoned by the fickled crowd that dragged him out of the city, thought he was dead. Amazingly, he got up, went back, preached some more in the, in the city the next to left day. Uh, left the next day. Uh, later, he courageously returned and strengthened those who believed, and he said, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Well, Timothy was one of those that believed at that time, put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There in Acts chapter 14. In the years that followed, Timothy grew in the Lord. He was highly regarded by the church for his ministry to the church. And it wasn't too long after that that Paul came back into town and at that time invited Timothy to come and travel with him, ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, can't you imagine Timothy going... Man, this is great. The guy that led me to the Lord, now he wants me to come and travel with him and, and share the gospel. What a great privilege this was. And Timothy would serve Paul as a devoted son would serve his father. At the time, Timothy was probably somewhere in his early 20s, Paul in his 50s, and they ministered together for the next 18 years or so. And the book of Acts ends with Paul there, prison, prison there in Rome. There's good reason to believe that Paul was released around 62 A.D., after writing the prison epistles, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians, Timothy had been in Rome with Paul. So perhaps after Paul's release, the two men made their way to Ephesus, among other places, where Paul then left Timothy there in Ephesus to deal with the matters while Paul went on to Macedonia, Philippi, and Thessalonica. So from there, sometime between late 62 and early 64 AD, Paul wrote this letter we call First Timothy to encourage Timothy in the ministry there in Ephesus. And his message to him, and this is our first point, don't be afraid of the task. Don't be afraid of the task. Look at verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father, Jesus Christ the Lord, as I urge you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. Now, Timothy was uncertain. He's a bit unsure of the task before him because in Ephesus, I mean, this was, there was this huge temple, an ungodly temple dedicated to the goddess Diana. And she was this 
multi-breasted statue symbolizing the goddess of fertility and the worship of the temple that went on in there was nothing more than an immoral orgy. But that's what that, the people in that city called worship. That's what they were used to. And so those living outside of the synagogue where Timothy was pastoring were, were those, those people. It would be like being a pastor called to go pastor in San Francisco or to you know, Las Vegas, a town known for its immorality. So Timothy feels uncertain, no doubt fearful on how to minister, how to reach the people of the city. So he may have said, as so many of us have said in the past, uh, you know, this is just a little bit too hard. Get me out of here. I- I'm done. I- I'm moving on. I- 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 this is too much. And yet Paul is saying, Tim, don't be afraid. You need to remain in Ephesus. Now, why would he make a recommendation like that? Because the seasoned Apostle Paul knows that the best way to build real Christian character is when the going gets tough, man, the Christian hangs in there. That's when they really get going. Paul knows that. And he knows that for Timothy to leave that place of faith, to leave that place of determination and endurance would be bad for him. He just can't quit, you know, and get up and leave. You know, we live in a world that produces quitters. In fact, there are those in this world that count on you being a quitter. They're called fitness centers, okay? You know this. You bought that, 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 that membership to the gym at Christmas saying, man, the first of the year I'm going to work out every single day. And, and those gyms are counting on you to fail. But you still have to pay for the membership for the year, maybe the year after that. They know that you won't last a couple of months because we live in a world of quitters. Now think about this. What if we looked at the scriptures and anyone who have ever asked by God to do something that, that required faith, what if halfway through they just gave up? They just quit. I mean, could you imagine Noah? You know, he's there and, and he's working on this ark and, and the people are, are coming around him and they're putting him down. Oh, what are you building this ark for? What's going on with that? And, 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 and Noah says, well, you know, I'm building this boat, you know, and I'm going to put every animal imaginable on this, on this boat and, and it's going to float for 40 days and you're all going to die. And, and imagine they said, oh, come on. That's dumb. Get down from there. You don't, don't worry about it. What if Noah said, hey, you, you know, you're kind of right. You know, I mean, what, what on earth am I doing? Yeah, yeah God's going to wipe out a whole earth and leave my family. I don't buy it. I'm quitting. I'm giving up. We wouldn't be here. What about David or Goliath? How about Moses standing there before the Red Sea? And he's got his staff in one hand and, and he raised up and he's standing back and see the power of the... Oh, never mind. I mean, God's not going to do that. Oh, what's going to happen? Let's just go home. Let's take it a step further. How about when the guards came to arrest Jesus there in the garden? And they said, we're looking for Jesus. And Jesus would turn around and say, I am, and you're not. Poof, and you're gone. And Jesus didn't go to the cross. What then? How about you at work tomorrow? Listen, here's what happens. In our Christian walk, we are given opportunities to move by faith into acts of courage and conviction. But often and sadly, we retreat into acts of comfort and convenience. We give up before we even take a step of faith. Listen, if you are a believer, that means you've given your life to Jesus Christ. And so if He truly is your Lord of your life, then when He asks you to do something, there's no other options. You do it. The words not so, Lord, are not in our vocabulary. And when it comes to serving the Lord, and you say, Lord, what would you have me to do? And the Lord points it out to you. It's not at that point that you have the liberty to say, well, I don't think so. You can't pick and choose. 
Because the first test that the Lord gives us many times is how willing are you to be his servant? To be his servant. I mean, if you say, uh, oh, I want to be a servant. I want to teach the Bible. Okay, go downstairs in the children's ministry. Start teaching the kids. See if you can be faithful in the little things, the little ones. How about changing the diapers in the nursery for a while? Well, I don't know if I'm called to do that. Well, I don't know if you're called to do any of the other responsibilities then. Because submission and authority are very, very important to the Lord. All that to say, when the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, I I think you need to be there in Ephesus, Timothy had the opportunity to say, I don't really want to be here, but he doesn't. He listened to Paul. He stuck it out. Now let me ask you this. What happens in your life when you're doing, with what you're doing and serving the Lord seems like it's too much? And, And yet God knocks in your heart and says, man, I want you to hang in there. I want you to keep going. I will strengthen you. Are you willing? Are you a servant or would you rather just quit? Let's look at it from a different angle. Maybe things are rough at home. Maybe things are rough on the job. Are you just going to quit? Are you just going to leave? See, that's so much of what the world pushes, but that's not what it should be for the Christian. Paul would write to the Galatians in Galatians 6, 9, Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. You see, the Christians should be known for facing insurmountable uh, odds and saying in their heart that there's no way that this could be done except that the Bible says, if God is for me, who can be against me? Listen, if God is for somebody, then wherever you go, God will give you the strength to do. That's what He's called you to do. Because we walk in faith. We don't walk in fear. Listen, church, don't be afraid of the task no matter what it is that God's called you to do. In fact, it's been said that the best faith is the scary faith. It's the kind of faith that says, yeah, I'm kind of scared here. I really don't have anyone or anything I can depend on except for, for, for you, God. So, so here I go. I'm going to take that step of faith. Because faith without some level of fear or element of uncertainty is not really faith. I mean, if you're absolutely sure where you're going, what your next step, step is going to be, that's not faith. The Bible teaches that there is no faith in seeing something that you can already do. It's being in a place where you can't see what to do and you're solely relying on God. It was C.H. Spurgeon who said this, A little faith will bring your soul to heaven. A great faith will bring heaven to your soul. And so Timothy, Paul says, Don't be afraid of the task. Stay in Ephesus. Be strong. Second principle we see here that Paul encourages Timothy to number two, be a communicator of the truth. Why? Well, because there are some problems creeping into the church. Uh, Look back at the last part of verse 3 and on into verse 4. He says, you need to deal with this problem. I see, he says, and charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which causes disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. See, Paul's concern here is if Timothy leaves, what was beginning to happen in this church, the false teaching, the, 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 the uh, endless genealogies, the other doctrines would just get worse and worse. And as a result, there would be the word being completely compromised so, that, so much so that in the end there would be no truth left at all. And I think it's safe to say that we are seeing that in many, many churches today. I mean, we live in what is the Bible Belt. I would even say the buckle of the Bible belt. Yet it's all buckle and no Bible. Pastors are no longer teaching the truth but tolerance. They are no longer calling sin, sin, but choice. 
And they steer just far enough away from God's word so they won't be confronted with the truth of God's word teaching otherwise. In other words, I'm going to stay away from Romans 6.23 for the wages of sin is death. And said, let's talk about 3 John 2, where that we may prosper in all things and be in health. And they may still call themselves a church, but, but, but all they are are social gathering places seeking to make you feel a part of their little group. And we find those that are saying the scriptures aren't relevant for today, and, and the Old Testament isn't, isn't important, and the whole counsel of God, well, that's really just the New Testament. Really. If it weren't for the Old Testament, we wouldn't be able to understand the New Testament. But see, we need to be communicators of the truth, the whole truth, so help us God. You know, we have objects that communicate truth, do we not? You see a sign that says, caution, wet paint. It's there, you know, you don't want to touch it. Caution, slippery when wet. Now what happens if we ignore the truth? We get paint in our hands and we slip and we fall. Let's take this analogy a little bit further. What about traffic lights? I mean, they're there to tell us something, the truth about something. Of course, yellow, I mean, it's, it's caution. You should be slowing down. If you're in the middle of the intersection, then get through it. If it's red, stop. But then there might be somebody else that might be running a light on the other side, so be careful. They're there for our own good. Now, what if it was up to you to decide what each color meant, depending on how you felt at the time? What if you said, well, green means go, and yellow means go faster, and red means, well, you might think about stopping eventually. You say, well, Pastor, people already do drive that way. In fact, I've driven with you, Pastor Tom, and and you. (laughs) Hush. All right, hush. Here's my point. What's happening in our world today is people are creating their own truths. And if you don't agree with their truth, then they say that you are wrong regardless of the real truth. It's like a recent video I watched of Ben Shapiro answering a college girl's view on transgenderism. And she was saying that if people would just accept that transgenderism is a scientific fact, there'd be no more discrimination against transgenders. And I love how Ben Shapiro responded to her. He said, let me ask you this. How old are you? And she replied, I'm 22. And he says, well, why aren't you 60? Why, why can't you identify as 60? And she says, well, that's not the same as gender. He says, you're right. He said, age is significantly less important than gender. You can't magically change your gender. You can't magically change your sex. And you can't magically change your age. But see, that's what's happening in our world today. There are those in our society today that are saying there's no longer any such thing as absolute truth. In fact, George Barner years ago did a poll of evangelical Christians and they were asked if it's, a pos- if it's possible that there is a thing, such a thing as absolute truth. And get this, only 20% of the evangelical Christians said that there was absolute truth. Listen, the Bible says sin will be judged. That is the truth. There's no ifs, there's no ands, there's no buts about it. Sin will be judged. And you say, well, I- I've seen some that, that have sinned and they've not been judged. Yeah, that's because you're seeing the here and now, not the after. Sin will be judged unless it's been judged on Jesus Christ for you. Otherwise, you'll have to pay the penalty for your sin. See, that's what the Bible teaches. That is absolute truth. So, if when I stand before you and I say, well, the Bible says if you're living in an immoral relationship and I'm telling you the truth that you should get out of that immoral relationship and you need to start honoring God, then I'm telling you the truth. And so if you are, are involved in that and I'm telling you that the, the light is red, you need to stop. You have a choice. You can say, well, no, the, the red means go, and I'm not stopping. See, that's, that's the rebellion against the truth. But if you come to the point where you say, yeah, I used to live together, but now I'm not, then you've experienced the truth. 
See, when, when there is no truth, then we live in total anarchy, and that's where we're at today. It's called situational ethics, where someone will say, oh, Tom, I know what you're saying about living together, but you don't understand where I'm at right now. This is an economic decision that we're making. We're still in love, and we still believe in Jesus. Come on, it's all right. Situational truth, situational ethics. Basically, when you're saying that, you're saying, well, God's word changes according to my own lifestyle. Sometimes I believe certain pages and sometimes I don't. It's just based upon my word. Listen, the God that we serve is the God of the whole Bible, the God of absolute truth. What he says, he means what he means, he says. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is absolute. Now, here's one thing we know about truth. It hurts. Because if someone happens to show up in the church here and they're living together outside of marriage and and they hear me saying what I said about living together, that can be upsetting. And from time to time, you know, I've had people come up to me after church and they're angry at me and all, how could you say all that? And, 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 you know, and I'll use different sins, you know, uh, and, and, and different examples of sins and those that may be dealing in that area of sin and they don't like to hear about it to the point where they get upset. But if I'm to be the leader that God has called me to be, then, and then what I've got to do is communicate God's truth the way God sees it, not the way I see it. Because it's the Bible that says that the truth sets you free. That means anything less than the truth is going to keep you bound up. And sadly, there are places today where they don't teach the truth. And what happens is everybody walks around in their own little bondages. And everybody has their own little secret sin and they learn all how to control them and captivate them and they're led astray by them so that nobody is free in church. And everybody goes out just as bad as they came in and nobody's changed. Not only is that sad, but it's a terrible waste of time because there's no truth. That's why God has called each one of us as believers to communicate the truth. And the truth is that Jesus Christ died for your sins, rose again if you confess your sins, Commit your life to Him. He will save you. He will, he will save you. So number one, don't be afraid of the task. Number two, make sure that you communicate the truth. Number three, uh, principle number, number three, stay focused on the target. Stay on target. For those of you Star Wars fans, you, you can't say those three words without knowing, stay on target, stay on target, and then the guy blows up. What's our target? What's our goal? Look at verse five. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Timothy, your purpose in sticking it out, even though it may be rough, even though it may be tough, it's love. So stay focused on that target. That target is the love of Jesus Christ stemming from a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, understand, I might have truth to share, I may have truth to tell, but unless I say that truth with love, forget about it. I'm not going to be very effective. And what Paul is teaching Timothy here is to make sure that he's communicating the truth, but make sure he stays focused on the goal, on the target, and that happens to be love. I mean, those of you who have loved ones that don't know Jesus, you know, I mean, you, you care a lot about them. And you've told them about your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you may have been rejected, and quite possibly it's because you did tell them the truth, but maybe you didn't tell them the truth in love. I mean, if you go up to a loved one who doesn't know Jesus, and you say to them, if you keep going the way you're going, you're going to die a horrible death. You're going to face eternity burning in sulfur fire. How would you like to burn? Do you want to accept Jesus? I don't think it's going to work, okay? Now, even though it's true, 
It wasn't a very loving way to say it. But if you've established that first fact, that, that, that love first, then you can tell any of your closest friends the hardest truth and know that they're going to listen to you because they know that you love them. As a church, we need to understand that people are not going to listen to, to what we have to say to them about heaven or hell until first they know that we love them. That's how we can move forward together as a church. It, 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 it's the kind of love that doesn't just say, hey, man, I love you, man, but, but it's a love that does something about it. Because, again, if you've established to those around you that you truly do love them by the evidence of the things that you do for them, then you have, in a sense, earned the right to tell them how it is. To tell them about God's love. And they become, at that point, a point to receive it because they know that you love them and it's been proven. Once you've established that you love them, then you can turn to them and say, hey, listen, if you keep on living that lifestyle you're living, it's not good for you. I mean, you're going to end up in hell and I don't want that for you. God doesn't want that for you. And they'll have that choice right then to say, man, you're right, I need to repent, or so what, I don't care. But at least they know that, that, that you've shared that with them out of love. So Paul says, don't be afraid of the task. Make sure you communicate the truth. Stay focused on the target, which is love. Then fourthly, he says, beware of those who have strayed. Look at verses 6 and 7. Talking about our sincere faith, he says, verse 6, from which some having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. See, here is, is what's happening. If you're not doing any of these things, if you're afraid and, and want to quit, if you're not making sure you're communicating the truth, if you're not focused on the target, which is love, then you're not going to be aware of your talk. In other words, you will turn to idle talk, just words, as Paul says. And Paul wanted Timothy to know that some have done just that. They started out in the Word, but they strayed, and, and now the things they're teaching, well, they're lies. They're falsehoods. You know, in sharing with people in the struggles they may be going through, if, if you're not in God's Word, then you'll end up giving them wrong counsel, worldly counsel. Or the other way around, you'll end up taking counsel from Dr. Phil instead of Dr. Luke. Get that, Dr. Phil and TV, Dr. Luke, the gospel of Luke, wrote the gospel. Here's my point. When I'm communicating God's word here on Sunday morning, the spirit of God goes out and touches your heart, and you walk away going, hopefully go away, the Lord really spoke to my heart today. And that really has nothing to do with me. It was his Holy Spirit working through his word. I'm just his, his, his microphone. But here's the danger. If you find someone communicating spiritual things, but they don't have the Spirit of God indwelling them. They may sound all fine and dandy. They may, even, they may even sound religious. But there's no power behind the words. And all we get is ear candy. Man, it's sweet. It tickles my ear, but it doesn't change my life. How can it? It's man's words. You know, it's more like a motivational speaker than someone speaking forth the Word of God through the power of God to change men and women's lives. It's the same warning that Paul gives there in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, that says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. That's what was happening during Paul's time when he wrote this. People would come in, these so-called teachers would stand up, and because it was all fancy, and because the people looked all religious, and they had all the robes on and all the attire, the people would say, Oh, look how spiritual they are. Look how they look and how they sound. But there was no power in what they were saying to change lives. In other words, these once teachers of God's word have now strayed. 
and for the sake of being relevant, they've turned aside to idle talk, verse 6 says. If you have an old King James Version, that word for idle talk is interesting. It's the word vain jangling. That's a word you don't hear every day, do you? Jangling. It's a great word for Scrabble because it's got the G and the J. I mean, it's a high point word if you're playing Scrabble. Guys, mark that down in your notes next time I play Scrabble. Jangling. When was the last time you heard that word? You don't hear it anymore. What does it mean? It means something that is there, but it has no value. It's like a baby's pacifier. If you've ever given a pacifier to your kids, you know what I'm talking about. They're crying, they're crying. You stick that beaky in their mouth and they start sucking on that thing like their life depended on it. But they're not getting any nourishment from it at all. You know, and, and there are a lot of religious pacifiers out there and pastors who are giving them to their congregations. But if you feed upon that pacifier, what's going to happen? You're going to get weak. You're going to die. That's the idle talk. That's a vain jangling. That's the whole idea behind the word. And it's the idea that, that you are going to church and you're participating, but not having a change in your life. It's like the dad will go into a church like this with his sunglasses on because he knows that it's time to snooze. And so he puts his glasses on and no one knows that his eyes are closed. And mom, she looks like she's taking notes, but she's making her grocery list, bread, milk, sugar, soap. Then the pastor gives his little 20-minute life sermon about life. Life, life, life. Life is good. And here's a little poem. And we're all good. And, and in prayer, and praying are done. And dad's had his nap. Mom's got a grocery list done. And the pastor made a few people feel better. And everybody walked out happy. And people say, oh, what a great church. And they do this week after week. And week after week, they're weaker and weaker and weaker till they die. Nobody's life has changed. Nobody's ever challenged to grow. And nothing has ever happened in your life spiritually. But hey, they've done their religious duty. No, you see, the conduct in the church, the purpose of gathering together in churches for brothers and sisters in the Lord to gather together and talk about our dad, this family that we have, talk about our good, good father, and for our good, good father to speak to us through his word, because it's his word that changes our lives, not idle talk or vain janglings. So beware of those who have strayed, beware that we don't stray. Finally, our last point Consider this a test. Look at verses 8 through 11. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Consider this a test. See, Paul has taken the law, and he's placed it on the left. He's taken the gospel, he's placed it on the right. And what he wants you and I to understand, and most importantly, what he wants Timothy to understand, is the law is not meant, uh, is not the means to get people to having a loving relationship with God. The gospel does that. See, I can come before you and give you a list of rules and regulations. Hey, you better not live together. You better love God with all your heart. You better be doing what he's telling you to do. But what happens is I've taken the law and I've turned it into my club. You know, and, and, and I can come up everybody who's not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I, and I, I can be like, like Bam Bam on the Flintstones. You know, Bam Bam, you better be serving Jesus. Bam Bam, you know, and, and, and you better not be living together. Bam Bam. And you can walk out of the church all beat up. Oh, yeah, the pastor really beat us up today, man. He's always yelling at us, and, and we can never do anything right. That's what the law does. The law focuses on what you have to do, or what you had to do. But the gospel, 
The gospel focuses on what Jesus Christ has done. What Jesus has done. You see, through the law, I could never satisfy those righteous requirements. So the law only brings me to the point where I have to say, I can't. I can't do this. And God knew that you couldn't. That's why Jesus died in your place so that you could. Through Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins. And when you understand His great love. And when you know how much He cares for you. Then you come to that place where you're wanting to do everything that the law teaches because out of love. I don't want to steal. Why? Well, because God is my provider. I don't have to have someone tell me not to steal. I don't want to take anything because Jesus died for my sin and cleansed me from it. I want to do what is right. The Bible says, have no other God before me. I don't want any other God before me. My Savior, Jesus, is the best God there is. Why would I want any other God? He's the only God I would ever put my faith and trust in. You see how that works? And that's how, why, the reason why Paul is teaching these things to Timothy to the fact that he knows in this, the life of the leader there's that tendency uh, to come on like a, a lordship leader instead of a servant leader. And Paul wants Timothy to be that servant leader. The, 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 the lordship leader is you better do, 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 do without any explanation for why. That's not love. If, if as a dad you, you say to your kids, you better get in there right now and do, do, do. And the kid says, but why? And you say, because I'm the dad and I said so. Be careful. I mean, sometimes that's an appropriate answer, but, but other times it's not the best answer. And sometimes the best answer is to lovingly explain to them why they should be willing to do what you've explained them to do. Because now they have a greater understanding. In the same way, I don't want to throw commands at the church. I want to show God's love. Now, sometimes, again, speaking the truth in love does hurt. But it doesn't have to be presented in a hurtful way. You know, I don't want to say, well, if you stay in that immoral relationship, you're going to straight to hell, you stinking sinner. That's the lie, you know. No, but rather, when someone is living in an immoral relationship, I want to say, listen, you don't want to live that way. Okay, that's not the best for you. You're not honoring God. It's going to separate you from receiving all that God has for you. But if you honor God in your relationship with, 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 with Him first and foremost, you're going to be blessed. And God will bless you for that. That's what God wants for your life. See, that's why we're called to preach the gospel, not the law. The law is a good thing, though. It tells us where we've fallen short, but the gospel is the good news. It tells us, tells us where to get help. And you see, if I'm preaching the gospel, the good news, then what happens is we're all in the same camp and we're all moving forward as the church. You know, I can't live a righteous life any better than you can, but with God's help, we, we both, we all can move forward together. That's the gospel. Again, Paul says the law was given for lawbreakers, not for the righteous. If you break the law, man, you know it in your heart, but the righteous, man, they'll understand the gospel, the glorious gospel, which is all about God's grace. And they'll respond to that gospel. That's what's been given to you. That's what's been entrusted to you. God has called you and I to share the good news, the gospel. So, as we close, are we moving forward together? Number one, don't be afraid of the task. Communicate the truth, number two. Number three, stay focused on the target. Number four, beware of those who have strayed. And finally, number five, consider this your test of faith. Listen, maybe you're here this morning and you haven't started yet. Maybe you haven't even given your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you haven't surrendered your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, the first step is coming to Jesus together. You need to, you need to surrender your life to Him. Listen, Jesus Christ wanted the cross to take the penalty of your sin, of my sin, so that we could be forgiven, 
free in Him, free from the bondage of sin that, that holds on to us. You can find that forgiveness and grace. But you've got to come to Him. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in with Him and down with Him and He with me. But you've got to open that door. You've got to say, Lord, I want to have that relationship with You. I want my sin forgiven. If that's your desire, I want to give you that. If that's your desire, I want to give you that opportunity right now as we close. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the things that you're showing us as a church. And Father, I want to pray, and we want to pray as a church. If there's anyone here that is yet to be a part of the church, Lord, they've yet to turn from uh, their themselves, turn from their sin, and turn towards you, Lord. We pray that they would do so this morning. Lord, that they would see their need for you and they would see their need to commit their lives and hearts to you. While their heads are bowed and their eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again today. You want your sin forgiven. You want to live the life of a Christian. If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? This is just between you and the Lord. You want to surrender your heart and life to Jesus Christ today. Just raise your hand so I can see it, so I can pray for you. Anybody at all. God loves you so much. He doesn't want you to go to hell. He wants to forgive you of your sin. He wants to cleanse you. But you've got to make that step and say, Lord, that's what I want. I want to be forgiven. I want to be born again. Just raise your hand before we close so I can pray for you. Anybody at all? Let me see it. So, Father, as we move forward as a church, Lord, help us to do that which you've called us to do through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Not relying on ourselves, Lord, but relying on you, that we can be more than conquerors to those that are in Christ Jesus. We thank you for that, Lord. We give you all the praise and glory and honor that's due your name. We're excited, Lord, for the things you have planned for us as your church. We look forward to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.